0: 23rd episode of Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellett. For today's episode, I crossed the northern border to tell the story of Natalie Allport. Allport began her love affair with athletics when her brother started hockey. Her father coached, and she eventually added hockey to her ever-growing list of extracurriculars. During the youth hockey seasons, Allport experienced a few negative scenarios which turned her off of the sport she loved, and toured an unassuming new passion.
1: And it was right around that same time when i was having those negative experiences that i discovered snowboarding so i remember just sitting in class uh we were doing this project and i told just i was having this daydream and i told the guy who was doing the project with us that i wanted to be a pro snowboarder and at that time i was no good like i was not good at snowboarding um from the get-go it took me like two seasons to learn how to turn but from that moment forward i decided i really wanted to snowboard so i started kind of scaling back my hockey so that I can make way for managing both. Um, And then once I was like in high school, I could just concentrate on, I could play high school sports still because the seasons were very short, one or two months long, and then spend the whole winter playing hockey. So I pretty much just dropped out of all the sports other than like school sports and just focused on snowboarding. She
0: recognized that the professional snowboarding industry would not take her seriously if she didn't have sponsors that believed in her. She filmed herself doing tricks and would then send the promotional material to brands that she knew valued other professional snowboarders. She also started traveling around Canada, attending competitions.
1: So the year before I graduated high school, uh, I Really started to want to take snowboarding seriously, and I started doing a few different competitions. So then I approached my parents and told them like, "This is really what I want to do." Like, as much as I've told you this before, it's really like what my, my I think my path will be after high school. So we ended up sitting down with the guidance counselor at my school and figuring out a plan so that I could graduate high school early. Turned out I had some extra credits because I did band uh, for most of the years. I played the drums, and then I was able to take some summer classes while I was working that summer so that I basically had all the credits to graduate uh, with when I was at the end of my first semester of grade 12 of high school. So I ended up being able to take the second semester off just to go to competitions um, and then to work. And at one of the competitions, I ended up breaking my tailbone. But then two weeks later, I got home and I ended up going to this other competition with a lot of pro riders, a lot older than I was. Um, And it was only about two hours away from home. And I ended up, pretty much laying down the run of my life and winning. And so this competition got me an invite to another competition in California. I got noticed by sponsors like Billabong. I got a lot of prizing. I got cash. It was like very exciting for me at the time. And then that summer, I decided with the money I had saved up from working in between those competitions, that I would go out to Whistler for the summer glacier camp. And that's pretty much where all the best riders in the world would go, as well as like young kids who were paying to basically be around all these pro riders. So I went out there and then snowboarding got announced that it would be in the 2014 Olympics. And that was, you're around all the vibe of all like the best athletes from all the different countries. So it was really exciting time. And at that point I was like, okay, I'm young, I'm new to this whole scene. Um, So I didn't know if 2014 I would have a chance being it's only three years from then. But I went home and I ended up uh, figuring out that I made the 2011 junior national team. So uh, basically what happened, I didn't even get a message from them. They released a press release and I got a friend who texted me uh, and then I figured out that I made it to this team. So that kind of changed my trajectory because my plan was kind of move out to the mountains and pursue like filming and being a pro snowboarder. But then this change where it was like, okay, competitions, I need to hire a coach. I need to get a sports psychologist, I need to get a strength and conditioning coach. Um, so it was pretty uh, exciting times for sure.
0: When the 2011 Canadian Junior National Slope Style Snowboard Team was announced, Allport was never contacted. The team was in the preliminary phase during the run-up to the Olympics and had created a conglomerate list of the best snowboarders in the country, of which Allport now qualified.
1: Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I remember I was like sitting at my cottage um, and then I was like, hey, like, apparently I made like a junior national team. Um, and it was funny because I had some friends, like, for example, half halfpipe snowboarding had been in a couple Olympics before that. Um, so I had, there was one other girl who we did trampolining training in the off season together. And she was actually from my same area because where I live is not really close to the mountains. So I was kind of like the only competitive snowboarder. Um, so she was another one and she was actually a couple years younger than me. And out, when we were out West, she was training, uh, part of like the junior national half pipe team. And so I ended up meeting that coach and riding, but I was no good at half pipe. Um, I had never really been in one. So that wasn't really an option, but it was just cool seeing like that process. Cause I never even knew that snowboarders could have coaches. I had no idea that was a whole thing yet. All these snowboarders, um, who weren't from where I was from all did have coaches and had been doing some sort of process like that. So, um, I got kind of interacted with that, that whole scene. And then that got me excited. And then when it was announced that it would be in the Olympics, I thought, okay, they must try to do something similar. Um, and then both her and I got announced to the slope style junior national team. So then my family and I had to really kind of work quickly on figuring out, you know, where am I going to live? Where, who am I going to get as a coach? And, um, figure out all that stuff because the program still wasn't fully developed where it was like, okay, here's like a national team training camp. Here's your coaches. Here's your training program. It was still like, you needed to hire a private coach, Um, you you were part of the junior national team, which means you could get into some like junior world championships, some world cups, and things like that. But we actually didn't have like a full team program like you would see for USA Gymnastics or something like that.
0: This was Allport's first experience having a team of people dedicated to making her better at her sport. These individuals, one sports psychologist, one snowboarding coach, and one strength and conditioning coach, were all sourced from around Canada. Through work with the sports psychologist, Allport found the visualization came easily. She felt more in tune with her body through that experience and still uses the principles she learned as a 17-year-old today.
1: Visualization was a big one that she did. Um, that was a big part. And also just, like, self-awareness. So, like, looking back now, I know she was really just focusing on the basics. I think partially because I was such a young athlete. And, like, also I was I was a goof-off. Like, I would tell her, I would come in to go to the gym and I would tell her, oh, I went to this party with my friend. She's like aren't you like supposed to be focusing on training and this? And, you know, I was a 17 year old kid, so she was kind of like, to put me in line which i always laugh like if i i wish i was still in contact with her now uh because if she could see that now i like compete in crossfit which is like the sport of training in the gym it would be so funny because back then i just did what she said but i had no idea what we were really doing or, or paying too much attention but yeah she just tried to like focus me um she even like touched on nutrition and stuff like that but definitely visualization was a big one um and then yeah just the basics of You know, just asking yourself questions and checking in with yourself um, and trying to figure out what you're truly feeling and going through. And are those thoughts really benefiting you or not?
0: While she was traveling around the country and the world, the 17 and 18 year old Allport was concurrently pursuing a bachelor's degree in business.
1: That was uh, both stressful, but also good for teaching myself time management, Um, because it's not really encouraged when you're part of some of the national teams to do college or university at the same time. I know with some sports it's different because especially in the States there's student athletes, right? So you guys have like track and field athletes, and then they can still go to Olympic trials and then make the Olympics. Well, here it's pretty much like a very demanding season that's separate from that. So track and field athletes could do that, but snowboarding isn't a sport that's a collegiate sport. Um, and so it really just demands you to be, especially with the season that we have, which is basically like a college semester with like the fall, winter, spring. Um, yeah, you, you kind of, demands everything. So especially for winter sport athletes here in Canada, it's kind of recommended that you just focus only on your sport but it was really important to my parents that I did school at the same time. So I always had an interest in business. I knew if I went to school, that was what I wanted to do. Um, I was always like fairly good at school. So um, yeah, ended up, I started just doing college because I thought that's the only course load I could manage. So we had like a local college that I was able to do a few courses, write my exams like a month early and then head out for my season. Um, And then I realized it would take me like 10 years to graduate based on just doing a few courses each year. And then, you know, just heading out for the whole rest of the year. And I was like, 10 years from now, I don't want to be with kids who are like 10 years younger. And I want to finish this soon. Like, so I ended up transferring into an online university. I saw their ads actually on TV. They were like, they partnered with a bunch of Canadian Olympians promoting their online university and how it was so beneficial for, I think they had NHL players and Olympians and all these athletes who were doing that. Um, I had already experienced with online courses because I did it to be able to graduate high school early. Um, and I've always been kind of self motivated and I really hate going to class I hate it I feel it's too slow they're just reading off the textbook I'd rather like try to teach stuff to myself. So that was exactly what my school was there was no guidance I had to completely teach myself everything, um, but that also allowed me a little bit more time management because. For some things that I felt I didn't need to study for, I could literally just write the exams, just do the projects, and then maybe put extra time into some of the other things. But it's really hard to manage on top of a schedule of traveling around the world and training, and then in the summer trying to work to pay for some of that stuff. Uh, It was definitely very stressful. (laughs) I mean, I started school the same time that I started the junior national team. The first two years I was when I did the college. So I guess 17, 18, 19, I was probably doing that college kind of thing. And then after that, for the last, it actually took me, I think it took me to finally finish my degree until 2018, which is not even that long ago um, because I was just chipping away at certain courses. And if I got injured, I would take on another course. Um, and then if I wasn't, I would like take six months to finish a course because I was like, oh, I'm really busy at this time, which was the cool thing about it because they gave you a pretty big amount of time to finish a course. So I could kind of like, oh, I'm going to take a month off this course and then get back to it um next month but it was it was pretty hectic especially traveling around i remember one year after nationals sitting working on my laptop and asking the guy whose house we were staying at i said hey like what time is dinner he's like it's 9 p.m you still have your snowboard pants on i'm like oh my gosh so yeah um i would just lose track of time and it, it was what was the hardest part i think was just Seeing my fellow snowboarders just relaxing, hanging out, playing video games, doing whatever they wanted after snowboarding. And like, I still had that responsibility of, you know, doing some coursework and getting on my laptop and chipping away at essays.
0: Allport graduated in 2018, but not before seriously considering the toll that professional snowboarding had taken on her mind and body.
1: Broken tailbone, uh, separated shoulders, uh, so like the AC joint broken ribs, concussions, whiplash. Uh, let's see. Uh, I got really bad shin splints. I thought were stress fractures once. It was like, I couldn't even tie up my boots for like three months. Um, sprained ankles, bad sprained ankles, um, broken fingers, uh, toes. Uh, oh, I exploded my heel fat pad. That wasn't fun. Um, and then lots of bruises and, I don't know, scrapes and bruises and cuts and things like that.
0: As the serious injuries accrued, Allport became more cautious, which she says should have signaled that it was time to take a break. Nevertheless, she persisted.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely weighed on my decision when I ended up, you know, stepping away, uh, for sure, because those injuries just keep weighing on you and weighing on you. It's almost like micro-PTSD in a sense, because you've had that experience, and now every time you go to a jump, you're thinking about the 10 other times that you've, like, broken yourself off before. Um, But for me, when I was younger, I was much more fearless than I was now, but also just the feeling of conquering that was really good. Like when you land that run, that feeling of flow and then you're in that flow state and then you land it and like everything is coming together it just, it's so incredible. And especially with the adrenaline rush, it's like, it forces you into the present moment as a sport. So I know, you know, a lot of athletes have to focus on when they're playing basketball, or even when I was playing hockey, I used to sing songs in my head sometimes, like sometimes I wasn't like there, but with snowboarding, because of the danger, you have to be there. And so it forces you to be there because of that fear, because of the risk factor. So I was really, I think just addicted to that feeling. And just, I was so in love with snowboarding. I was like, if I die snowboarding, I die. But then as I got older into my career, I was like, that's just, I have so many more things I want to do in my life. And do I want to risk getting another concussion or, you know, getting, you know, tearing my ACL, MCL, never being able to fully use my knee again, or, you know, different things that could really affect the rest of my life.
0: The nail in the coffin of her love for snowboarding occurred during a competition in the United States. When she came face to face with the impact of the injuries that she and her teammates were sustaining in the name of professional snowboarding, It was all over.
1: That feeling of being off, it just kind of led almost to like a depression where I was, every day I'd wake up, I was like, I'm living the dream that I always had. I'm in Whistler, I'm doing these training camps, all these things. And yet I'm just not happy. And I was like, and then I felt guilty because I was like, I can't share this with anybody because everyone's on the outside looking in saying you're living the dream. Oh, your life is so amazing. Oh, we're back here at work and you get to travel the world snowboarding. So that made me feel even worse because I was couldn't figure out why am I feeling this if I am living this amazing life that I always dreamed of? Um, so I try to push through, try to push through and kind of, you know, open up to a couple of close friends, but nobody else really. And then what happened was it kind of halfway through the season, I went to this competition in uh, in the States and out of the whole Canadian contingency that went, There was like two of us that were left still standing by the finals of the competition the weather was bad the jumps were built poorly we had one girl who needed ankle surgery after practice another girl who had internal bleeding and i was trying to prevent her from going into shock she was spitting up her blood and couldn't remember whose blood it was like she would ask me immediately like whose blood is beside me i'm like oh it's it's yours and so that was really scary um, and then experiencing being in the hospital with, you know, her mom who ended up having to drive down and talking to her and saying, I don't know, she might have to call it quits. Because at that point, like that's that's pretty serious stuff. And she that was her second serious injury that I've been with her. She had dislocated her hip the season before. And actually, my parents ended up being at the hospital with her that time. So just witnessing that and thinking that is you know, it's just a matter of time for something like that to happen to me, especially if I'm going to make a run for the next Olympics for 2018, since I had missed out on 2014. I thought, could I put myself through three more years of that? Is it still worth it for me? Are there, you know, is it, especially at the age I was, is there still a chance in another sport for me? Or what if I continue on? I don't make the next Olympics. I'm left with a body that just can't do anything else. I have concussions. I have, um, you know, I'm going deeper into this depression. I'm getting more anxious. I have kind of a history of anxiety attacks. I didn't really know what they were coming from. And so that was a big game changer for me. I spent the whole drive home just thinking uh, about my decisions, about what I wanted to do in life, and just trying to come to terms with my thought that maybe I wanted to leave the sport because those thoughts were coming up and they'd come up for a couple of years, but I always was like very quickly to dismiss it because I was like, I spent my whole life like focusing on the sport. I said to, to my parents at three years old, I wanted to go to the Olympics and this is my chance. How could I ever give that up? Um, so it took a lot just to accept it personally before I even was then able to like vocalize it to other people but it was after that that I started realizing I don't know if I want to continue doing this Um, but I still went all in to the rest of the season because I said I can't just like call it quits on a a whim because it's again giving up everything I've worked for for my whole life so let me just like spend all the money on going to every event like doing everything I can this season giving it my all and then see how I feel at the end and um, by the end, I was even, it was kind of even worse from pushing through that. I, I even broke my ribs that season later on at a World Cup. I hit my head a couple of times that I was not too happy about. So um, yeah, at the end of the season, I decided to kind of just say, hey, don't consider me for the national team selection next year. I'm going to take a break, which ended up being a permanent break. Allport
0: began to see her experiences with snowboarding as a means to another injury. The minute she allowed herself to view the quick pace of snowboarding from an outsider's perspective, she saw her life in terms of living post-injury as opposed to thriving as a competitor.
1: I started looking at, at it from a outside perspective. And once I started looking at it from the outside perspective, I knew that was kind of where it was over for me because it's very hard to get back. So when I was there, it was like injuries were normalized. Like I said, like I'm doing what I love, so if I hurt myself or if something worse happens, like. It happened doing what I love. So that's, you know, a sacrifice I'm willing to make. As I started looking at it from outside perspective and like looking at other sports, I was like, this isn't normal. And the fact that I thought it wasn't normal meant I wasn't mentally in it anymore. And uh, it really hit home when I was watching the Netflix documentary Drive to Survive on F1. I think in season one, one uh, they were talking about the crashes and one of the athletes who died. And um, one one of the drivers was saying, that there was like a quote and it was, I probably will butcher it, but he was saying the moment that you have any fear is when you have to retire. When you think like you're worried about crashing one, it's probably going to be more likely that you then will crash. It's going to change how you're competing, but two, you will never be competitive anymore. Um, and so that was a big thing that happened to the end of the end of my, um, last season, I was even making excuses. My coaches will say, Oh, go learn, do this trick. My, one of my hardest tricks, or, uh, how about learning this trick? And I just felt like, I always had an excuse of why I didn't want to do it. And it was because I was scared. I didn't want to get injured again. I thought trying to push myself to do this trick right now is not worth the injury. And you can't think like that to be competitive and to progress in the sport. It was important, but it was also hard because then looking back, I felt like this resentment to the sport because of all these injuries I went through and all these different things. Then I was like, well, for what? Because now I walked away. But obviously my mindset has shifted now where it was like, that was all experience that made it, made me who I was today. It wasn't for nothing. It wasn't like I had to restart my life after that moment. In
0: 2015, following missing the 2014 Sochi Olympics, she went through depression and panic attacks. After Allport officially walked away from professional snowboarding, she took a soul-searching trip to Bali, Indonesia to work through her identity post-sport.
1: Bali was like a, a big thing for me because I never traveled on my own. Uh, every travel I had done was, was with, you know, the team. I know like some people, for example, maybe they'll do a gap year. They'll go travel with their friends or whatever. But everything I had done was traveling with the team. And when you're with your team, especially... There's people older than you, younger, there's a the physios, there's uh, people who work in the uh, Canada snowboard office. And as the coaches, you're always trying to impress people. One, you're trying to perform well. You're trying to make sure you have a good impression for your sponsors, for the coaches. So you can never, you're, not, you're never truly just being yourself and doing what you want to do. Of course, I'm doing what I want to, which is snowboard and compete. But you just, you're in situations where you have to present yourself in a, in a certain way rather than just like relax. And if you don't want to do anything that day, don't do anything. So when I got to Bali, I was able to do exactly that. Like there was days I just like, I'm just going to go and go learn yoga or going to go and take a meditation class. Or then I'm going to go to the gym and meet some friends or I'm going to go surf or I'm just going to go drive into the jungle and like go hike and see what I find and then come back. I could just kind of do whatever I wanted and without people knowing who I was or what I did or any like identity piece attached. It was just like me, the human being just there doing my own thing. So that was really cool to kind of just be a separation from, from that, because I went through a really big identity crisis and mental health challenges during that summer, since I kind of stepped away from the sport. So that was a really big piece into like rediscovering who I was outside of snowboarding. Like, I'm just a big believer now, like you're a human being and not a human doing. And so before I thought I was just defined by what I do. And so not making the Olympics and then quitting snowboarding a year later, I was like, that's what I'm defined by. Like, I'm a failure. I'm... Uh, I gave my life to this and then it didn't make it. And now I have to like restart or figure something else. Or what is my future? Everything I envisioned was in this sport. So like, what is my life five, 10 years down the line going to be now? Um, And so I was just able to be like, wait a second. No, like. Who I am is more important than the things that I do or the things that I accomplish or the things you put in your Instagram bio or whatever it is. Um, So that was a really big stepping stone in that path to healing. And of course, one month didn't fix everything. Um, There's still tons of work to do. There's always going to be work to do on that process, but it was a big Kickstarter for sure.
0: As Allport shared her story on social media to the tune of 12,000 Instagram and 67,000 followers on TikTok, one of the event organizers from TEDx reached out to her on LinkedIn moved by her story
1: TED talks aren't just about a story of course you want to use storytelling to kind of convey your message but the the thing about TED talk is it's called it's like viral ideas so you have to really portray one concise idea or you know thought that you're putting out there and so for me it was like that failure isn't actually failure in the sense of how we look at it and it was based on my experience of how I focused so much on results that it drove me to, you know, poor mental health and all these things that I experienced in snowboarding to then the point of, I didn't make the Olympics. And And then I ended up walking away. And then how I've developed my mindset to not look at failure like that anymore in the same sense and how I don't believe failure is a failure. I don't look at that like, oh, that was when I peaked in life and now I'll never hit that again. It's like, no, that's all just a building stone, stepping stone. And I hope I peak on my deathbed. Like it's all going to be build up and build up. Um, So that's kind of uh, the theme of it. It was, it was difficult to you know, you only have like 10 minutes and trying to concise it down again into one idea, because I feel like, oh, I could talk about growth mindset, or I could talk about failure, or I could talk about mental health. So I was like, how do I intertwine all those undertones of my story, but into that one idea. So it ended up being called failure, what I learned from not making the Olympics, Um, hopefully resonates with a lot of I know, there's a lot of athletes now, and we see everyone, you know, the ones who have made it to this summer Olympics kind of their stories, but there's countless other athletes who just missed out by a few spots or, you know, who, whatever happened. I know this morning, Shikari got kind of disqualified and all these things. So there's a lot of athletes that could resonate with that story, I think. So I hope that, um, athlete or not really, it just kind of teaches you that these are all lessons we can all learn from these things and that, you know, whatever this setback is, or this, Failure in a sense, it's not its not a failure. If you can take something from it, in fact, it could be one of the greatest moments in your life if you can take something and move forward with it.
0: Allport's TEDx talk is live on YouTube at the link in the show notes.
1: Most importantly, I'm gonna share with you how I've changed the way that I viewed both success and failure and how that can help you in pursuing your goals in a more sustainable way. Allport's relationship with failure is It's complicated. At one point, failure was something that I just could not accept. Simply not an option. But today, failure is a concept that I fully embrace. It doesn't hold her back from continuing to create content
0: that fuels her passion. For example, Allport launched a podcast during the pandemic called All In, which seeks to tell the stories of athletes and non-athletes who've cultivated their destinies through passion projects and life outside of sports. It's about creating the perfect version of yourself. And Allport prides herself on the conversations she's been able to have on the platform.
1: It challenges a thought about being all in where people might think all in is like sacrificing life and, you know, just focusing on one thing. It's about actually prioritizing you and going all in on anything you want to be, whether it's a better mom, whether it's a better athlete, um, better in your mental health, better in your, um, daily wellness practices and your recovery. Um, and so I like to bring on just individuals who do really cool things, especially in sport, because that's, that's my world. That's my language. That's how I view the world. But the podcast is for athletes and non-athletes, because I think the lessons from sport are very relatable to everyday life. And especially the metaphors in sport. When you're a non athlete and you visualize, you can visualize someone's sport experience, it's such the extremes that then you can visualize it in any aspect business, family, whatever it is. Um, and then a, a big focus definitely on the, the mindset piece and things like mental toughness, mental health, um, those kind of things, um, mostly because during the pandemic, when I really kind of got this podcast uh, going was I just saw a lot of negativity going on online. And I wanted to like focus back onto positivity, resilience and conversations that could uplift people and give them practical tools on how to, you know, go all in still on their dreams and their goals and sport or not sport still while the pandemic was ongoing. And then beyond that. The link to listen to it is also in the show notes.
0: Allport also has a social media marketing agency called 93 Agency, which seeks to help athletes with brand image. In the age of NIL, The best piece of advice that Allport can give is to keep creating content that fits who you are, not necessarily the brands you hope to attract.
1: They'll come if they align with your vibe. Snowboarding is like a natural content creator sport. Like you're always filming and taking pictures and doing things because before the Olympics, the main part of snowboarding was actually filming and making movies. So it's always been a big part of it. So I think it kind of came naturally in a sense um and then now with my agency trying to help other athletes do that because it's even more important than it was when i was doing it and there still aren't that many people helping with the education side of how can athletes learn to do them do this for themselves there's agencies in there trying to connect them with brand deals especially now there's a million of them popping up trying to take advantage of nil and get a percentage of that cut or whatever it is Um, but i'm like how about helping the athletes actually figure out how to build their brand because An agency might come in and tell them, hey, like I can hook you up with this $200 sponsorship deal or whatever it is, $2,000. But how can the athlete move up and get more? They need to know how they can build more content, how they can grow their audience, all these things that nobody is really stepping in to to teach them. So I think it's a really important part. I think it also empowers the athlete to take control of their name, image, and likeness now that they have the control over it, especially for college athletes, Um, and also to impact the next generation, especially when you look at female athletes, when we're getting only 4% of media coverage compared to male athletes getting most of it, social media and going direct to fans is one of the best ways that... Uh, female athletes can make a big impact and to the next generation and in their sports right now.
0: Alport says that anyone hoping to secure brand deals should dedicate some
1: time to in-depth LinkedIn research. I mean, one thing is like you can use LinkedIn to even find who the decision makers at brands are. So that's like a big hack that I try to tell athletes because nobody tells them that and they think I'll just DM brands. And I'm like, usually when you're DMing, they might just be uh, one, they may not read it cause they make it a lot of DMS. Now it used to not be the case. Like I used to on Twitter, when Twitter first came about, I would message brands. And I'd be the owner of their company often that would like message me back because it was before there were social media managers, but now there's social media managers. And then below their social media coordinators, like there's a whole social media department. So chances are you're reaching somebody who has no influence over picking their team Mark. uh, you know, their athlete team or anything, especially if you like work to DM Nike, that's probably not going to do anything. <laughs> um, you want to be in contact with the right people. And often on LinkedIn is a way to do that um, because you can find those decision makers, the athlete manager, the brand manager, the marketing manager right there. Um, But then, you know, when you just want to open up the relationship, using your stories and posting brands that you use, if I'm drinking a protein shake here and I want to get sponsored by the company, what if I just prove to them I'm a customer first and like post about it? And then I can show them, I can message them on LinkedIn or email and show them, hey, when I posted this like 50 people click to go over to your brand. So there's a lot of interest or sending them screenshots and saying, whenever I post about my workouts, people always ask what workout I'm doing. So then you can bring that to the company of workouts that you do or whatever it is. So there's a lot of different ways you can do, uh, use social media just to reach out to those brands as well as prove to them that you could be of value. It's like, you could be D3, it doesn't matter, but you can figure out a way to still build your brand out on social media. I know there was a story of a kicker who was a D3 kicker, and then he got so big on YouTube that he wanted to make money off it. He just quit being a football player and now he makes millions of dollars on YouTube. So there's always a way, no matter what level of athlete you are, to figure out you know what brands could align with you. There's always a story, whether it's from your hometown, you know, a car dealership from your hometown or something. Or it could be, you know, maybe you're bigger than that, but you have this bigger story about mental health and you get Headspace or Calm as a sponsor or something, right? Like there's a lot of different things. Um, But I think for the athletes who are getting these messages and they're getting brands coming in, you got to start figuring out then like what's your worth, what's your value and what's your rate. So I think it's really important for athletes to kind of know their brand values, compare them to these offers that they're getting, know their rates, but also be willing to wait the right brand partnership at the right rate um, and see because you can't sell to 20 different sponsors at once. That's just going to dilute your audience. They'll never trust you again. So make sure that you know that you're always wanting to still be building that audience, not just selling out all their trust at once and um, finding those right brand partnership fits. And for athletes to
0: think that their following isn't large enough to warrant larger brand partnerships, Allport has some
1: perspective. The term influencer, I think, can be applied to anybody. Like, it's so funny because someone will say, I have 200 followers, I have less than a thousand followers. I'm not an influencer. People think it's like a certain metric. Like, where in the world before social media did a thousand people follow you? Like, that's crazy. That's filling up a huge stadium. So I was like, that actually is influence. We all carry influence. We all, even if we're not on social media, we carry influence over our family, over our friends, like people who are around us. So I think like everyone is an influencer in a sense. Some people, that's their job like they do they create content they like they spend a lot of time purposely growing their influence and their amount of people that they're influencing um and then they make money you know selling things and influencing those people so there's i think we're all influencers there's some people that just make a living off of it and obviously athletes kind of fall in that category someone i know there's a athletes don't want to be called influencers often and i feel the same way i you know people are like oh you're an influencer i'm like i'm an athlete but um I think if we look at the respect that we all have influence and we all are influencers and we can all look at it in the, that um, perspective. But when a brand looks, they look for those brand value fits usually. And that's why when a brand reaches out and it just copy paste, I'm like, you didn't try to see if I'm the right fit for you. Um, I have brands sometimes they like message me for things that like I would never use. And I'm like, well, clearly you're just messaging me because you see I have this many followers, but I, am not going to be the person who says, oh yeah, sure. Just cause I want to make a few dollars. Cause I'm going to say, I'm not going to be able to deliver you results. Cause it's not the right fit. Um, my audience won't trust me anymore. Um, you won't be happy. I won't be happy. They, you know, the audience won't be happy. So, um, try to turn those things down. But I think the brands who are doing it right, they're looking and they say, they see a few different athletes, perhaps they're looking for certain sizes. So they're like, okay, we want an athlete within a certain Size range based on their budget, budget usually. They'll be like, okay, we can only pay the athlete $500. So the athlete needs to be between this follower range or whatever. Or maybe they have $10,000. So, like, okay, we're looking for five athletes at that level, or they're looking for one person at a very higher level. Um, so they might do things based on their budget, but then they'll look at brand value fit and they'll see, okay, like our product is uh let's say their product is like um, a tool to make you breathe better or something they may look for athletes who post frequently about training but meticulous in their training like someone who like just never post about training it might not be the best fit but an athlete posted behind the scenes of their training as well as how they're specifically trying to work on their conditioning that could be the perfect fit because this athlete has already posted that they're trying to work on this specific thing and then this tool is already helping with that so i think mostly they're trying to look for that right fit that it fits in the athlete's story because um, the best partnerships are the one that feel organic you can follow along
0: with the rest of Natalie's story by following her on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Natalie Allport, and subscribing to Natalie Allport on YouTube. While you're on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, follow at Closer Mental and subscribe to Closer Mentality Uncensored to hear the full versions of each episode's interview. If you have any ideas for future guests or topics, I'd love to hear them. DM us on Instagram if you or someone you know would like to tell your story. That's all for episode 23 of Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellett. Tune in next week when Dr. Alex Arbach, the Director of Wellness and Sports Psychologist for the Toronto Raptors, comes in to talk about the NBA's handling of mental health and how we as spectators can help break the mental health and sports stigma. See you next week.